Morning everyone, thanks for coming back to the third lecture in this series. Today I'm going to talk about The Merry Wives of Windsor, a play that was a great favourite in the 18th century, probably uh, uh, kind of right at the top of the list of Shakespeare plays for the 18th century, but one which has struggled a bit to find uh, a place in the critical repertoire uh, and in the theatrical repertoire ever since, and try and uh, talk to both those absences. So, on The Merry Wives of Windsor, I think the question that I want to try and focus my discussion on is, why Windsor? Let's start, though, first by uh, locating uh, the play in Shakespeare's career. Firstly, obviously, it's got a really clear connection to Shakespeare's history plays on the reign of Henry IV, Henry IV's parts one and two, because it transports their star character, Sir John Falstaff, into a different genre. Okay, so it shares uh, its central character with uh, a major character in those history plays. It's probably, therefore, connected to the new date. So perhaps uh, it comes from around 1597, 1598, something like that. So it's in among the history plays and comedies that mark this part of Shakespeare's career at the end of the 16th century. One of the things I want to focus on about Merry Wives of Windsor is that it's a kind of bourgeois comedy. It circles around Falstaff's antics. First, he's accused of poaching deer. Then uh, the rest of it is him trying to get off with Windsor wives. Uh, he's completely unsuccessful, though. Uh, he's roundly tricked uh, by two of the wives, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page. And in the uh, course of that... Uh, trickery, the women make um, the jealous husband, Master Ford, see how unreasonable his behaviour has been. So there's a kind of <coughs> educative process around Falstaff, but also around Master Ford. Both of those men are seen to have behaved uh, inappropriately. Uh, in the, there's a romantic subplot in which a number of suitors jostle for the hand of Anne Page. Uh, she pursues her own courtship of Fenton. Fenton is the person she wants to marry, and eventually she does so. <coughs> There's quite a lot of comic scenes and japes that I'll mention as we go through the lecture. Uh, if you're someone who finds English uh, with a foreign accent hilarious, you're going to love Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, what I want to say, though, about this play is that basically it's on quite a small scale. A lot of what the play is about are mundane or ordinary activities, the niggles of married life, running a household, the interactions of a small, slightly caricatured community, which in some ways looks a bit like a soap opera, uh, a, a kind of contained uh, soap opera. And that's the place from which I want to investigate the significance of Windsor. Firstly, though, I should acknowledge that most of the discussion about Merry Wives has not been about where the play takes place, but about when. The priority of time over location has been all about that uh, relation of this play to the history plays. Um, and let's just talk a little bit more about that for a minute. So Falstaff had been the star of two history plays, Henry IV, part one and two. And it's his popularity, really, that means uh, that we get part two because he is a runaway uh, stage success, much the most popular stage character Shakespeare ever writes, uh, and comes back uh, in a sequel. 
we might think of Merry Wives as, a, as another sequel. The title page of the quarto edition of Merry Wives, which is published in 1602, makes it clear that Falstaff himself is the main attraction. So the, the, the name by which we know this play has changed over time. And the title in, under which it was first printed in 1602 is A Most Pleasant and Excellent Conceited Comedy of Sir John Falstaff and the Merry Wives of Windsor. Now, it's a commonplace of historical serial narrative to put the two parts of Henry IV together with Henry V, perhaps with Richard II at the front, to produce a narrative of historical and character development we might call the Henriad, or something like that. A serial which is organised either like a Virgilian epic or like an 18th or 19th century Bildungsroman, the kind of maturation of the young hero, uh, around the kind of testing of a central character. Mary Wives, though, gives us an alternative, in some ways a more interesting sequence uh, than that slightly cliched uh, cluster, uh, a sequence that's more like a Falstaffiad, a sequence organised around Falstaff as a central protagonist. That's what Verdi does in his opera Falstaff. It's what Orson Welles does in his Falstaff-focused film on these uh, plays, Chimes at Midnight, and either of those might be interesting ways uh, to think about how this play connects to the histories. When Prince Hal takes up the crown at the end of Henry IV, Part II, you may remember that he, one of his first, the first action of being a king, the way that he shows that he has repented from his uh, prodigal youth, is to banish Falstaff. Till then I banish thee on pain of death, as I have done the rest of my misleaders, not to come near our person by ten miles. So uh, Falstaff is literally kind of relocated at the end of Henry IV, Part II. Uh, Windsor is not exactly ten miles from anywhere Henry is likely to be, unless he's hanging out at Heathrow uh, or High Wycombe. But perhaps we don't need to be quite so literal. In banishing Falstaff from the court, perhaps King Henry propels him into this provincial comedy. But relatedly, if Falstaff is alive in the Henry IV plays and seems the same kind of character here in Merry Wives, should we think that Merry Wives of Windsor takes place in the early 15th century? So I don't think we should. I mean, Falstaff isn't really a historical figure in Henry IV either. Part of what's powerful about him in those history plays is a kind of figure from outside history. Uh, he doesn't believe in history play, heroics like fighting uh, and honour, uh, and he's a kind of counter uh, to that uh, ideology. So he's a figure mis misplaced or displaced even when he's in a history play. But the transposition of this character into comedy I think is more generically interesting than it's historical meaningful because to all intents and purposes Merry Wives of Windsor looks as if it takes place in the contemporary Elizabethan world. Now of all Shakespeare's plays only the induction to the Taming of the Shrew with its references to place names in Warwickshire, seems to take place in contemporary England. Okay, so Shakespeare doesn't really do contemporary England, and maybe Mary Wives is the one place where he does. So place for me is more important than time uh, in locating Mary Wives. I think this is not primarily a historical play, but a topographical one. Windsor seems then to matter. 
Now let's come at this via a slightly larger view of Shakespeare's sense of place. Most of Shakespeare's plays, as you know, and as we've discussed before, follow some preordained shape from written sources quite closely. Most of these sources are originally Italianate, sometimes French, romance fiction. Shakespeare's sources are not mostly native, uh, and that tells you something about English literature more generally at the time when he's writing. On many occasions, Shakespeare simply carries forward the location of his plays from the source. So, the forest of Arden, sometimes Arden, in As You Like It, comes from Thomas Lodge's prose story, Rosalind. In the Robert Greene romance, Behind the Winter's Tale, the same places, Bohemia and Sicilia, are the locations of the action, though Shakespeare has flipped them, perhaps because he thinks hot-tempered, jealous Leontes should be in a hot place like Sicily. This has, of course, brought Shakespeare into error about the seacoast of Bohemia. Sources for The Merchant of Venice give Shakespeare not only the plot of the Jewish usurer, but also the location. And arguments that Shakespeare must have had to go to Venice for research are completely bonkers. The author of Merchant of Venice has never been to Venice, nor does he need to, apart from a mention of the Rialto Bridge, which is hardly the hallmark of intimate knowledge of the city. There's no local experience uh, here in the play at all particularly given that everybody who went to Venice in this period was fascinated by the original ghetto, the gated suburb in which Jewish residents were uh, shut up at night. It seems extraordinary that writing a play about how Jews are and aren't part of Venice, if you knew about the ghetto, you wouldn't mention it. That's to say, place is fictional in Shakespeare in the literal sense that it comes from fiction, not from experience. Now, there are a handful of plays nominally organised around place. Two Gentlemen of Verona, that I'm going to be talking about in a couple of weeks. Pericles, Prince of Tyre. If you remember that play, you'll know Pericles uh, spends no time really in Tyre at all. That's the point of the play. He's he's on the move. It's a kind of uh, picaresque or wandering story. And Timon of Athens. You might remember Timon moves from Athens... Uh, into a kind of wild place uh, in the second half of the play. But Merry Wives of Windsor, I think, is different from these other examples in two ways. Firstly, we don't really have any attested major source for Merry Wives of Windsor. So, so far as we know, Shakespeare invents it, largely. Uh, And that makes Windsor a kind of invented place, an invented location, which is different from those inherited locations like Arden or Venice. And secondly, what's important about this place is its English. So the place name doesn't work to fix the play into an exotic or classical location, but then how does it work? Is Windsor the, the exact opposite of exoticism, Is it like saying Scunthorpe or Slough? This is the part of the lecture where I'm bound to offend uh, someone. Uh, Is it like saying the only way is Windsor? Or is it something more like Martha's Vineyard or something which has a recognisable social uh, topography or kind of social demographic which is less a place and more a kind of demography? 
There are a couple of immediate contemporaneous associations of Windsor that I want to try and pick up uh, for a minute. Firstly, the market town of Windsor, uh, uh, which is, uh, as you probably know, on the River Thames, uh, 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 about uh, 20 miles outside London, uh, the market town of Windsor was probably in decline in the later 16th century. And that follows the drying up of the Reformation pilgrim trade, uh, of the pre-Reformation pilgrim trade uh, after, uh, after the Reformation. Eton, next door to Windsor, just across the river, had an important Marian shrine which attracted lots of pilgrims. Probably, since it's Oxford, there are lots of people who know uh, that the full name of that school is actually the King's College of Our Lady at Eton, besides Windsor. King's College of Our Lady of Eton. I didn't know that, uh, but the Eton Shrine had brought lots of pilgrim tourism to the area around Windsor in the later Middle Ages. This had pretty much stopped by the period of the play. So the bit of this that I think I want to take away is that Windsor might have been a town that had seen better days, uh, a bit washed up, a bit down on his luck. And that, we might think, is a good place for Falstaff, who's also looking a little bit shop-soiled. I don't know if there is any relevance of the, those religious associations, those residual re re religious associations that Windsor might have had. Of course, Catholic England had its own geography and topography of monasteries and their lands, of pilgrim sites and pilgrim routes. And it's interesting to think how those erased geographies might persist in a kind of cultural memory. Maybe they're the topographical equivalent of Sir Hugh the Parson uh, in the play, whose opening remark is, by Our Lady, that invocation of the Virgin, which uh, doesn't fit Protestant thought, but which is still a kind of verbal habit, a natural verbal habit for many late 16th century Protestants. Secondly, the connotations of Windsor are royal. There had been a royal palace on this strategically important site on the Thames since the medieval period. The parkland was notable for the royal sport of hunting. It was a good place for the court to retreat to in times of plague from Lon uh, in London. The chapel at Windsor Castle was the centre uh, of the Order of the Knights of the Garter. The Order of the Garter is a uh, it's hard to really know what it is, but it's a royal honour anyway. Um, uh, and there's long been an attempt to connect Merry Wives with some sort of garter installation ceremony. The tavern in the play is called the Garter. And at the end uh, of Merry Wives, Mistress quickly commands her fairies, uh, who as we'll see are schoolboys in disguise, to search Windsor Castle elves within and out. Now, this association with royalty that attaches itself to Windsor is an interesting part of the play's ongoing reception. That first quarto publication of Merry Wives in 1602 has royal performance associations, as it hath been diverse times acted by the Right Honourable, my Lord Chamberlain's servants, before, both before Her Majesty and elsewhere. This performance claim is dropped when the play is republished in 1619. Now, it's not the first of Shakespeare's plays to make this claim in print or to make royal performance part of its marketing strategy. Love's Labour's Lost, printed in 1598, also claims a royal performance. And the quarto of King Lear in 1608 
records a Christmas performance before James I. This information of title pages is all uh, really easily available on the excellent Folger Library site, which is called shakespeare-documented.org. Shakespeare-documented.org. It reproduces in digital facsimile all the documentary records relating to Shakespeare's theatre, including a title page of every extant edition. Now, Mary Wives has accrued lots of royal associations, most notably following the early 18th century editor and Shakespeare biographer Nicholas Rowe. Rowe asserted, we don't have any other evidence for this, that the Queen was so well pleased with that admirable character of Falstaff in the two parts of Henry IV that she commanded him to continue it for one play more and to show him in love. Uh, Falstaff is not, uh, as we're going to go on to see, Falstaff is not really in love uh, in Mary Wives of uh, Windsor. Um, but this is a sort of unlikely, uh, it's unlikely to be true uh, in a literal sense, but of course it's true in the sense of the kind of myths and stories uh, we have wanted to tell ourselves about Shakespeare. I think Rowe's anecdote about Mary Wives being written uh, on Queen Elizabeth's commission speaks to a long fascination with potential encounters between Elizabeth and Shakespeare, which have animated a long kind of creative fiction which interweaves the two. Uh, in the 18th century, the forger William Henry Ireland forged a letter purportedly from Elizabeth thanking Shakespeare for his pretty verses. And we can see the, the, the charge, the, the desire for it to be true that Shakespeare and Elizabeth are intimate in some way uh, right through to the encounter between them in the film Shakespeare in Love. So Windsor then has a really prominent association with royalty, but what I want to talk about about the play is the way it pulls significantly in the opposite demographic direction. What seems most important about the play now is less that it might have been written uh, at the command of the Queen or for the garter ceremony. And interestingly, these narratives look in retrospect like attempts to pimp the play towards a more socially elevated status uh, as a kind of overcompensation for the fact that it is so resolutely middle class. Okay, so it's not really royal at all, so there's this big, this big effort to kind of uh, make it more so. What's most obvious, that's to say, about Merry Wives is it's really only Shakespeare's only comedy of the middling sort. Uh, William Harrison, the uh, Elizabethan writer, writing his description of England, wrote very helpfully about a kind of uh, pre-modern class or status distinction uh, in England. We in England, uh, Harrison wrote, divide our people commonly into four sorts, as gentlemen, citizens or burgesses, yeomen, and artificers or laborers. Gentlemen, citizens or burgesses, yeomen, and artificers or laborers. And the middling sort is the term historians tend to use about those people in the middle, citizens, burgesses, yeomen. So neither gentlemen or aristocrats on the one hand, nor artificers and laborers uh, at the lower end of the spectrum, but the people in the middle. Windsor is middling sort central, even though Sir marks Falstaff as an ungentlemanly sort of gentleman. 
Let's look again at the title page that includes that information about royal performance. I'm still with the quarter of 1602. A most pleasant and excellent conceited comedy of Sir John Falstaff and the Merry Wives of Windsor, as we've already heard. But then it goes on. Intermixed with sundry variable and pleasing humours of Sir Hugh, the Welsh, Welsh knight, Justice Shallow, and his wise cousin, Master Slender, with the swaggering vein of ancient pistol and corporal nim. So this is a bustling, interconnected world with six named characters plus the Merry Wives themselves as part of the title page. More, I think, than we get on any other uh, play by Shakespeare. This is a kind of social world, an interconnected world. And it's a world resolutely bourgeois or middling sort. The Fairy Queen at the end of the Merry Wives of Windsor is really not Spencer's poetic allegory of Elizabeth, but the Doctor's housekeeper, Mistress Quickly, wearing an elaborate costume and supervising a cast of malevolent juvenile fairies. The Merry Wives of Windsor is the play of Shakespeare's that most consistently ignores blank verse in favour of prose, the ordinary, unheightened language of the everyday. Here, there are no counts or dukes as in other comedies. Here, middle-class professionals, vic vicars, doctors, hoteliers, go to taverns, get their washing done, gossip, know each other's business, swap books and reading recommendations, send their children to school, and so on. Perhaps this small-town bourgeois world is the equivalent of the market-town politics of Stratford-upon-Avon, in which Shakespeare grew up. It's striking that the classroom scene uh, features a schoolboy called William. Shakespeare, as I've already said, never sets a play in the contemporary London where he made his career. Modern productions have really amplified this sense of provincial and domestic life in Windsor with lots of different stage business. Uh, choir boys playing conkers, mock Tudor suburbia, the wives plotting under hair salon dryers in Bill Alexander's Royal Shakespeare Company production of 1985 with a cast of children, young people, and older adults, and a range of occupations uh, and domestic locations, this play does seem to have a kind of provincial realism as the backdrop to its absurd plot. So Windsor, although it had been associated with a royal castle uh, since early medieval times, and although royal rituals are part of this play's denouement, seems, in fact, for Shakespeare, a community of ordinary-ish people rather than the widely socially stratified world of Illyria or of Messina in Much Ado or the fairy monarchy we get in Midsummer Night's Dream. So far then, we've addressed the why Windsor question by acknowledging that it is a real English location and that crucially it's provincial and middling sort rather than metropolitan. One of the things about Windsor residents uh, is uh, that they buy things Economic relationships are probably the most significant ones in this play. Property and propriety are closely linked. The play opens with Justice Shallow complaining about how Falstaff disdains these uh, values of ownership uh, and respect for ownership, which he thinks of as definitive of Windsor. He threatens to go to the Star Chamber with the complaint that Falstaff has beaten my men 
killed my deer and broke open my lodge. We can see that this uh, act of uh, disrespect for, um, for Justice Shallow's property anticipates Falstaff's claim on those merry wives of the town and his cat-handed attempt to seduce them. And it also anticipates the cuckold's horns with which he will be crowned in the weirdly phantasmagoric mock garter ceremony in Windsor Great Park with which the play ends. Establishing the plot on the basis of property and theft, that's to say, establishes one of its most important themes. Mary Wise predates the popular comic genre of the early 17th century that's all about city life and the economic self-interest to which human relationships have been cheerfully subordinated. Um, in the companion series to this uh, lectures, these lectures are called Not Shakespeare. There are lectures on Middleton's Chase Made in Cheapside and Decker's The Shoemaker's Holiday, which might be relevant to this contemporary, near contemporary genre. So, Merry Wives isn't a city comedy because, as we've been saying, it's not set in the city and it predates those popular plays uh, of the early 17th century, which are. But it does share with city comedy an interest in the material in stuff that has been of particular interest to contemporary critics. And I want to try and think about that interest in relation to one particular episode in the play, the humiliation of Falstaff in the laundry basket. This scene gives us some of the components we now associate with farce, a physical uh, use of props uh, for farcical purposes. In the plot of Merry Wives so far, Falstaff, in a kind of romantic version of spread betting, has sent identical and unsolicited love letters to two wives of the town, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page, as the wives uh, recognise, letter for letter, but that the name of Page and Ford differs. Um, uh, there's some suggestion that actually Falstaff has got some printed love letters made with spaces for the name of the uh, woman. These letters include the winning phrases, you are not young, no more am I, go to then, there's sympathy, you are merry and so am I, you love sack and so do I, uh, if the love of a soldier can suffice. Uh, it struck me reading this letter that it's got an, uh, a relation both to the blunt wooing scene of Henry V at the end of that play and perhaps to Hamlet's curiously flat love letter <coughs> Uh, to Ophelia that's read out in his. So Falstaff is short of money, and his main interest in these women is economic rather than romantic. And so the plot turns, like those later city comedies, on money or on sex as a commodity with a particular economic exchange value. Mistresses Ford and Page, of course, confide in each other and they discover this double insult. Not only has he made advances to respectable married women, but he's done it to both of them at the same time. And they set Falstaff up for punishment. One of the long-discussed definitions of Shakespearean comedy connects it to festival traditions, often related to the Russian critic Mikhail Bakhtin's influential idea of the carnival world. For Bakhtin, carnival was a form of cultural subversion, which he argued reveled in the suspension of norms and the indulgence of bodily and carnal impulses. But it's important that our idea of festival 
doesn't over-sentimentalise it. Uh, over-sentimentalising carnival is particularly dangerous when coupled with the idea of Shakespeare, a combination that's long served the ideological conservative myth of Merry England, a nostalgic vision of a small-town England of thatched cottages and roast beef a good fellowship that, of course, never existed. And we can see the shared term Merry in Merry England and here in Merry Wives connects this idealised national construct with Shakespeare's play. And indeed, the popularity of Merry Wives of Windsor in the 18th century probably coincided with the consolidation of this nostalgic idea. So part of why Merry Wives was popular was it was seen to be super English in a way uh, that people wanted uh, to have presented. But in fact, if we look at festival and ritual traditions here in Merry Wives, they're actually rather bracing and also normative in their impulses. Rituals like scapegoating or social expressions like the charivari, the kind of uh, carting or uh, um, uh, procession that uh, shames people in, in social communities, the charivari, these are designed to bring social behaviour towards the norm. They're conservative, that's to say, rather than transgressive. Uh, they pick out behaviour that they don't think uh, appropriate and they ridicule and humiliate it in order uh, to uh, change it. Now, we tend to emphasise transgression and subversion in Shakespeare's comedies, not least because we want our artists to challenge rather than reinforce social norms. It's good to remember that there's actually quite a lot of authoritarian and conservative discipline in Shakespeare's comedies, from the violence repeatedly meted out to the servant twins in Comedy of Errors, to the thoroughgoing humiliation of the upwardly mobile Malvolio in Twelfth Night. Comedy here is less in the service of social subversion and more provides the shock troops of conservatism and moral order. I think the same is true in Merry Wives. We see a kind of ritual humiliation devised by the wives and corroborated by the Windsor community against their would-be seducer. Windsor itself, in the final scene which includes all its characters in the park, in Windsor Great Park, under one of the great symbols of Merry England, Hearn the Hunter's oak tree, takes a comic but unmistakable moral revenge against Falstaff. Schoolboys dressed as fairies sing a puritanical rhyme, fie on sinful fantasy, fie on lust and luxury. Lust is but a bloody fire kindled with unchaste desire, fed in heart whose flames aspire as thoughts do blow them higher and higher. Pinch him, fairies, mutually pinch him for his villainy. The fairies use the rhythm of the other world that Shakespeare uses to designate Macbeth's witches or the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. But here they are knowingly performing the supernatural within a deeply mundane material world and enforcing bourgeois, ultimately bourgeois behaviour, fie on sinful fantasy, fie on lust and luxury. Now the scourging of Falstaff begins earlier though, uh, here in the scene with the laundry basket. <coughs> What happens to Falstaff in this scene is a kind of anti-fertility ritual. He arrives at the house of Mistress Ford thinking he's going to have sex with her uh, and instead uh, a quite, a, quite, different, um, uh, quite a different scene unfolds. The lover arrives full of compliments. Have I caught thee, my heavenly jewel? 
Why, now let me die, for I have lived long enough. Mistress Page arrives to this compromising assignation. Falstaff, as the stage direction has it, stands behind the arras. You can see that this is the coordinate of Fast, isn't it? The, 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 the lover caught uh, and having to hide in some piece of, you know, in the wardrobe or in some piece of, kind of domestic furniture. Mistress Page informs them that Master Ford has heard that his wife is entertaining uh, a man alone at home and he's coming back in a fury. There's a general panic, although this has, of course, all been set up by the women. And it's agreed that Falstaff should be very quickly hidden in the laundry or buck basket that we have seen brought on stage for this very moment, a few minutes before his arrival. And he agrees, two servants have the unenviable job of heaving this enormous burden off the stage as the furious Master Ford comes in uh, at the same door. So farce is all about things, people going in and out of doors uh, sort of at the same time or in that kind of split-second timing, isn't it? The laundry basket full of dirty linen is both a great stage prop and a moral symbol. Falstaff's behaviour earns him not the carnal pleasure of Mistress Ford's body, but rather a kind of intimacy with the dirty clothing that has been next to it. In among the filth and grease of the family's washing, his moral character is clearly displayed. As he himself later recounts, this is a distinctly humiliating form of carnival. It's not exactly Bactinian uh, ideas of uh, reveling in the, in the physical and in the bodily. It's actually uh, a kind of ritual of disgust uh, or of shaming. This is him describing uh, his, uh, his um, ordeal. To be compassed like a good Bilbo in the circumference of a peck, hilt to point, heel to head, and then to be stopped in like a strong distillation with stinking clothes that fretted in their own grease. Think of that, a man of my kidney. Think of that, that I'm as subject to heat as butter, a man of continual dissolution and thaw. It was a miracle to escape suffocation. And in the height of this bath, when I was more than half stewed in grease like a Dutch dish, to be thrown into the Thames and cooled glowing hot in that surge like a horseshoe. The humour of this account is amplified by the fact that he's telling the man he would have cuckolded. The masochistically jealous Master Ford has disguised himself and befriended Falstaff in order uh, to hear even more about how Falstaff wants to get off with his wife. This is a comic version of those tormented relationships between uh, uh, husband and, and lover, that, which are sort of so weirdly triangulated in Shakespeare's insistent recurs to this story of the, of the jealous uh, husband. So the relationship between Othello and Iago, for instance, or between Posthumus and Iacimo in Cymbeline that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But back to that shaming. Falstaff undergoes a shaming ritual in which he is presented to public view in the theatre, as well as in Windsor, in a humiliating and exposing manner. But it does not stop there. This is a scene choreographed by the women to re-educate the men. I do not know which pleases me better, says Mistress Ford after they've all gone, that my husband is deceived, or Sir John, that my husband is deceived, or Sir John. But what happens slightly later uh, complicates the gender politics of this narrative. Falstaff arranges another assignation with Mistress Ford, 
And of course, he brags of it to the disguised Master Ford, who turns up again to try to catch his wife in flagrante. This time, Falstaff has to escape disguised as what Mistress Ford calls my maid's aunt, the fat woman of Brentford. Uh, so my maid's aunt, the fat woman of Brentf Brentford, has for some reason left a very large gown uh, in which Falstaff can be disguised. Falstaff exits to prepare this ridiculous costume and Mistress Ford explains her method. I would my husband would meet him in this shape. He cannot abide the old woman of Brentford. He swears she's a witch, forbade her my house and hath threatened to beat her. Sure enough, Master Ford encounters the fat old woman and beats her roundly in frustration at having turned the laundry basket upside down, this time to try to find the seducer. Two things interest me here. One is material and one is social. Firstly, the material. We can see that Falstaff's humiliations in these two aborted wooing scenes are closely collocated with women's clothing. So we know a lot about uh, how women characters in Shakespeare uh, approach men's clothing uh, in the plays. We often talk about kind of cross-dressing or uh, gender blurring or gender fluidity in that direction. We don't so often talk about it uh, this way around. Um, so these humiliations are closely collocated with women's clothing, either the dirty linen in the laundry <coughs> basket or the borrowed outfit of the old woman of Brentford. In their fabulous book on Renaissance clothing, Peter Stalibras and Anne Rosalind Jones show how closely clothing was associated with personhood in this period. In fact, the book actually argues that attitudes to clothing are one of the signal sites of a difference between how we see ourselves now and how people in the Renaissance saw themselves. For the early moderns, they suggest, clothes were material mnemonics. Uh, they were, they were the, the site of personhood, they were material mnemonics. Whereas for us, they say, these are essentially detachable and disposable goods. According to this account, then, the specific form of Falstaff's humiliation mocks his attempts at masculine virility by recategorizing him in the female sphere. He's less a ladies' man, as he would want to be, and more effeminized, effeminized by proximity to this clothing. And it's a really good way to look at any play, this play particularly, but at any play, to work out what objects or props or stuff it would need to be performed. That can often point you uh, to something quite specific uh, and significant about it. So that's the material. The second point about, is about the social function of Falstaff's humiliation and how this relates to our central question about Windsor. Falstaff is completely outclassed in Windsor. The challenge to history play values that made him such a hit in the Henry IV plays seems to be completely neutralised here. His intrusion into the bourgeois world of Windsor creates barely a ripple as that laundry basket sinks into the river. Windsor values are utterly dominant in the play. Falstaff's own self-interest is never a threat. Perhaps that's actually because Windsor and Falstaff are ideological, if not literal, bedfellows after all. Falstaff tries to seduce Mistress Page because she hath all the rule of her husband's purse and he hath a legion of angels. 
So Mistress Page is attractive to him because she controls uh, Master Page's money. But I, anticipating, again, the ideological contours of city comedy, romantic and other relationships are so commodified in this play that Falstaff's uh, attraction, the, the attraction of Mistress uh, Page for Falstaff is really the attraction of all the figures in the play to each other. So that's to say Falstaff is not uh, an outsider to the values of Windsor, but in some ways uh, the, focus for, uh, it, the focus for them. Falstaff echoes rather than challenges the values of the society in which he finds himself. We can see this perhaps most clearly in the subplot between young Anne Page and her chosen suitor, Fenton. Anne herself is really a pretty uninteresting and underdeveloped character, so she's a structural figure, uh, the young uh, woman who's going to get married, uh, rather than anything more interesting. Uh, and in fact, one of the... Uh, what one of the striking points about Merry Wives is that it organises itself not around young virgins who are about to be married, but the state of marriage itself, something which we don't so often uh, see in Shakespeare's plays, which tend to be interested in the period right up to marriage or in an unexplained widowerhood uh, sometime later. But Anne Page is characterised in uh, distinctly economic terms from the start. What's attractive about her is her dowry, she has 700 pounds of monies and gold and silver. Even the romance plot in this play, that's to say, is characterised by economic and proprietary interest. Uh, the, st the story of the young characters uh, and their wooing is not separate from this, the, this more washed-up uh, narrative with Falstaff and the wives. In fact, it's just the same thing. Falstaff's financial motives for wooing are thus the Windsor rule, not the exception. Anne is a lucrative marriage commodity, fought over by a trio of suitors, including Master Slender and the comic French Dr. Keyes. Of course, in true new comedy fashion, new comedy are those comedies where young love outwits the blocking figures, those parental uh, opposing uh, figures, uh, in true new comedy fashion, Anne has already chosen Fenton as her preference, uh, and that's what's going to uh, come, come around in the end. There's a, great, uh, there's, there's a great twist at the end where the other two suitors uh, are somehow f made to marry or at least sort of pair off with uh, boys dressed as women. Uh, quite an interesting uh, element of those questions in Shakespeare, which isn't discussed as often as some of the more obvious cases. Um, but Anne's mother, Mistress Page, is driven by the same economic motives as the rest of Windsor, planning actually that the doctor should be her uh, son-in-law. He is well-moneyed and his friends potent at court. So Mistress Page uh, is herself uh, interested in money and in power and in uh, the kind of economics of marriage, not in romantic love. Fenton, too, is associated with uh, money, paying out bribes and hoping for the success of his suit in, quote, recompense. So Fenton and Falstaff look like moral opposites in the play, but they actually turn out uh, to be rather similar. Windsor is a byword for a comfortable bourgeois world in which money is the dominant value. And it's interesting that Shakespeare locates that in a provincial town rather than the London that's just coming into view as a location 
for contemporary dramas by, by his fellow playwrights. So I suppose what I'm arguing for here is that Windsor helps us to see Merry Wives as a kind of proto-citizen comedy set outside London. It could be fruitfully compared with work by Middleton or Decker or Johnson or Marston, or it could interestingly sit alongside Merchant of Venice, Measure for Measure, or Comedy of Errors, also Shakespeare plays particularly concerned with economic communities and the relationship between desire, exchange, and commodity. One last element of the play I want to suggest to you is textual. I've talked quite a bit about that busy title page of the 1602 quarto text of the play, and there's a second edition in 1619. In 1623, the play appears in print again as part of the first folio. Like many plays with a similar printing history, Merry Wives is quite different in its quarto incarnation than in the folio. The quarto is only about two-thirds of the length of the folio, and it doesn't have some notable scenes that I've already mentioned, including the discussion of the garter ceremony and the comic schoolroom scene in which young William struggles with Latin. Now, you'll know that current thinking about variant early texts has moved a long way from the old bad quarto designation. We're more likely to think about Shakespeare, or if you remember, all as well last week, another playwright revising uh, uh, his work and to countenance the idea that the longer text is an adaptation of the shorter, rather than that the shorter is always a cut or inadequate version of the longer. As I've suggested in these lectures before, the interesting question now about textual variants is not why, but so what. We're less interested in ingenious theories about how the texts come to be, and more in the theatrical specificity or authorial revision uh, that might be displayed there, recognising that a play text as a script for potential performance never really exists in a permanent or ideal form on the page. Now, so what, I think, turns out to be interesting here. There's not been a huge amount of work on quarto and folio Merry Wives, but my sense is that folio Merry Wives is more Windsor-y. It's more interested in Windsor more economically motivated, more specifically located than the quarto. Many of the things I've been talking about about this play, therefore, have the great critical advantage of being easy to spot because there's a comparative text where they don't exist. Okay, so comparison is, is a really easy, critical method to work out what's significant because you can see what the, what the text looks like without those elements in it. The two texts of Merry Wives then offer a really interesting case study and a less explored example of textual variance than our now familiar tragic examples of Lear or Hamlet. And it may be that editing, like the rest of Shakespeare criticism, has been more interested in the sort of intrinsic seriousness of everything about tragedy than it has been able to be about comedy. To bring us back to our central question, why Windsor? I think the answer to that might be different whether you're reading the 1602 or the 1623 text of Merry Wives, or to be more accurate, whether you're reading the play called A Most Pleasant and Excellent Conceited Comedy of Sir John Falstaff and the Merry Wives of Windsor in 1602, or the one in 1623, which we call The Merry Wives of Windsor. 
So I've been suggesting that Windsor has a particular role to play in Shakespeare's only contemporaneous English play, that it points to particular communal and social values that link this comedy with the economic and moral themes of slightly later citizen plays generally located in London settings. I've suggested finally that looking at the two distinct plays uh, published as the quarto and folio <coughs> of Mary Wives can help sharpen some of those factors through comparison. Next week, I'm going to talk about the second part of Henry VI, but don't worry, I'll be talking about why the first part of Henry VI is not quite as necessary to that play as you might have imagined. In fact, I think my question for the lecture next week is going to be, why part two? Maybe I'll see you then. Thank you.